Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Galliotti, analyst of Russian politics and honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, uh, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And I believe this last one, which came out uh, a few months ago, has just won an award for the best book, if I'm not mistaken, the best book on U.S.-Russian relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. So that's quite prestigious. Um, and congratulations, and thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Well, great to have you on the show again, this time in 2023. Uh, the war is still, still going on, obviously, in its, in its 12th month now. Uh, and both questions that I want to ask you stem from, from matters you discussed uh, and points you made in the latest edition of your podcast, uh, In Moscow's Shadows. So please forgive me if you're, if you're tired of talking about them, but I found it pretty fascinating and wanted to, to follow up a bit on a couple of a couple of aspects. The first uh, is about the tanks that Western countries have pledged uh, this month and mainly last week uh, to send to Ukraine, where Russia's large-scale invasion is, as I said, in its 12th month. The one-year mark comes on February 24th. Uh, British Challengers, German Leopards, and uh, U.S. Abrams tanks are, are those, the main ones that have now been pledged. Um, you mentioned in your podcast that most of these tanks are not coming right away, and some will take quite a while to get to Ukraine and to the front lines. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you also said that it's possible that with this time factor in mind, Russia might actually seek to launch a new offensive sooner rather than later. And in fact, might launch it before it's really prepared to do so, before it has enough troops trained, um, and so forth. And while there's talk about both sides, uh, Russia and Ukraine planning new pushes on the battlefield as spring approaches, I have heard analysts say it would probably make, make sense uh, for Ukraine to, to hold off and wait for Russia to launch its new offensive first, I guess. Part of, part of the reason being that it is said to be easier to defend uh, than to attack, uh, and that an offensive could make Russia's forces more vulnerable. So my question is essentially, how important would you say these tanks are, uh, and how do you see them affecting the course of the war? Could the deliveries result uh, in substantial gains for either side? Okay. I mean, look, first of all, let's, let's start with the importance of the tanks. Um, these have to be considered both militarily and in many ways politically, because after all, all war is indeed a, a political act. Militarily, look, these tanks are highly capable. They're more capable than the majority of the Russian, indeed Soviet designs that, that the Russians are fielding. And again, it's an additional sign of the way that just as Russia, courtesy of its sort of massive losses that it's that it's taken on the battlefield, is increasingly essentially fielding a late Soviet army. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians are increasingly fielding a 21st century army. Now, of course, just simply having the tanks exactly is just the first step. They have to be tank crews trained, 
perhaps even more importantly, the maintenance crews trained and large supplies of spare parts and the like sort of prepositioned. Tanks are, on the one hand, exceedingly powerful and dangerous beasts, but on the other hand, surprisingly fragile and do need a lot of maintenance. And also the Ukrainians will actually have to think about how best to use them. Now, obviously, they have been planning combined arms operations for some time, and we underestimate the Ukrainians' capacity to be inventive and flexible uh, at our, or more to the point, Russia's peril. Um, you know, but, but nonetheless, again, it's, it's, this is not some, some instant sort of panacea. And likewise, the presence of perhaps up to 200 main battle tanks will be significant on the battlefield, but is not in and of itself some kind of magic war-winning instrument. There's always this quest for the sort of the, the next silver bullet. Um, the fact of the matter is, is war is complex and no, no one weapon actually sort of clinches the deal. In terms of what, what to do with them, I mean, in a way, look, yes, of course, they, they have multiple options. They can wait for the pretty much inevitable Russian spring offensive. There's not really much point in mobilizing and still having about 150,000 mobilized and prepared uh, reservists if they're just simply going to be garrisoning the, the front line and waiting. And I think it's fairly clear that with the replacement of Surovikin with Gerasimov as the overall field commander, you know, Putin expects results. I mean, he, he doesn't want in three months' time for Gerasimov to be reporting and saying, good news, boss, we haven't lost any more territory. That, I doubt, is, is, is what he's really expecting. So, yes, they, what they could do is wait and they either use their, their advanced tanks if they're yet in the field as a counter to Russian armor, because you know, tanks are one of the best ways of killing other tanks, or they could use them for their own kind of offensive. Now, in this context, again, the Ukrainians have, have a tendency to have relatively high levels of operational security, frankly, even as regards their allies, let alone their enemies. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to know for sure. But I think, you know, what is clear is that whether they seek to strike first, whether they wait for the Russians to move first or whatever, the Ukrainians need to show what could crudely be called some kind of return on investment. And this is where the, the, the political dimension of the tanks comes in. The Ukrainians are painfully aware of the potential, and I stress that, potential fragility of the Western alliance. Its unity, its will, its willingness to basically dump billions of pounds, dollars and euros into Ukraine every month, both in terms of military support, but also in terms of the kind of financial assistance which is keeping the Ukrainian economy alive. And that could begin to fracture. And to be honest, that's clearly really what Putin is counting on. I mean, he would like to see some more victories on the battlefield, hence the frankly rather pointless constant meat grinder around Bakhmut. But ultimately, he doesn't expect to, to win this war on the battlefield anymore. I think he expects to win this war politically through essentially making it clear that Russia can and will keep this war going as long as it, it takes and hoping to outlast the West's will and capacity to continue to support Ukraine. Now, again, whether or not that's actually a viable option is in some ways irrelevant. I mean, I think this is Putin's strategy because basically this is all that offers him any chance of winning some kind of substantive triumph. So he has to believe that it's possible. 
Now, in this context, the Ukrainians are constantly having to cajole, encourage, boost, and if need be, try and bully the West into providing sustained amounts of kit as well as more a new kit. And it's quite striking how immediately the tank decision, the, the, sort of the um, Berlin deadlock was broken. Immediately the argument went, well, OK, well, what about jet planes now? So, you know, there's always going to be more more demands and so forth. And I'm not criticising the Ukrainians for doing that. I mean, they're in an existential struggle. But nonetheless, they are aware of the degree to which they push. And frankly, they must be aware of the degree to which there is a certain amount of Ukraine fatigue and even Ukraine frustration to be found in the West. I mean, even here, I mean, I'm, I'm currently speaking to you from, from D.C., where I am temporarily. And although you know, there's no question, but there is a broad consensus that, of course, Ukraine must be supported and will be supported. But even amongst people who are working hard to ensure that happens, there is a certain degree of exasperation at times. Um, so I think, generally speaking, Ukrainians are, ha- are having to work hard on managing the West. And in this, Zelensky has proven to be absolutely brilliant. But again, I, th- I think, therefore... There is a need for the Ukrainians to be able to demonstrate that they can actually provide some kind of prospect of being able to win the war themselves. They need to have the victories of their own. This is a funny thing, both the Russian and the Ukrainian generals, for different reasons and under very different circumstances, face political pressures to be able to provide some kind of results. And in this respect, you know, a solid armoured spearhead with Western-designed tanks, and just a little sort of footnote, by the way, this is not, after all, the first tanks being sent. You know, we should note that the Czechs and the Poles and others have been sending modernised Soviet-era kit for some time. Nonetheless, you know, these advanced Western tanks, supported by Western infantry fighting vehicles and armoured personnel carriers that can keep up with them and bring the infantry support, plus all the rest of the panoply of modern war, the artillery, the air defence and such like, you know, that could potentially produce the sort of, you know, like a, a mechanised brigade's force which could actually act as a pretty powerful spearhead to give the Ukrainians more kind of tactical flexibility, more chance to, for example, make a stab at breaking the Crimean land bridge or perhaps rolling further back the lines around um, you know, the uh, so-called you know, former People's Republics. Anything that actually not only keeps momentum on their side, but also keeps the political momentum, keeps them being able to point to the West and say, look, you know, this won't go on forever. Your money, your support is producing real results. Keep on supporting us. So that's a rather kind of lengthy answer. But the sort of bottom line is, as I said, we should think, see these tanks as a useful, though not in themselves war-winning military asset, but also, you know, actually providing the Ukrainians with the opportunity to develop a new political asset, showing that they can actually push the, the Russians yet further back. All right. Thanks very much for that, uh, Mark. Let's move on uh, to a somewhat different topic. Essentially, um, the way Putin and the Kremlin are are framing the war. Now, of course, uh, they are still calling the war that they're waging against Ukraine a special military operation, and it's forbidden uh, in Russia to call it a war. Um, But at the same time, uh, they seem more and more to be trying to convince Russians that, that they, that Russia, is in a war with the West in, on a grand scale, uh, and in particular the United States, and that it is somehow Russia that's under attack, that's the victim, rather than being on the attack. 
uh, and that it's an existential war for Russia, that the West is, is out to destroy Russia and is using Ukraine uh, to do this. Um, again, this is in some ways not new. Um, it's been part of Putin's shtick for years, I think, you know, to, to say that the West is out to get to get Russia, you know, and often suggesting that it's out to, to actually tear Russia apart and destroy it. He's been saying that since the early 2000s. Um, but uh, it seems to me that, you know, it's more in focus, it's in focus more than ever and, and sort of more specific in the context of the war in Ukraine. Uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm misinterpreting your words, but I believe in your podcast you refer to this as an effort to portray Russia as fighting a new patriotic war um, with the, the, the historical um, uh, suggestions there or implications, uh, a new patriotic war uh, with the aim of, mobiliz of mobilizing society for constant or at least prolonged war. Um, and I believe uh, kind of like an ideology of war. You didn't say that, but uh, that's how I guess I'm putting it. Um, and I believe you say that this effort actually seems to be failing, um, that many Russians are not buying it or not really going along with it, that they're keeping their heads down, essentially, I guess, waiting for something. So one reason I want to ask about this is because I think someone who watches Russian TV or reads about it on Twitter might get the opposite impression. In other words, the impression that, you know, society is really on board in, in a huge way uh, for this war. Um, there's there's no opposition, you know, there's little visible opposition. Um, but let me let me get to the question. Um, as someone who uh, was introduced to the Lord of the Rings at a very young age, I really liked your analogy of the Eye of Sauron, the Lord of the Rings. The, this kind of very ominous eye uh, that one fears is all seeing, and, but in fact misses a lot and can really only see what's happening or make things happen in those areas to which the eye, the Dark Lord's gaze is turned. Now I'm going on too long, but, but so let me ask you if you could elaborate a little um, on why you believe this, this effort to kind of mobilize Russians for a new patriotic war is failing, if, if that's what you're saying. And what um, this might mean for the war in Ukraine and for Putin. For instance, does it mean that, that Russia really can't win? Okay, a lot there to unpack. So, okay, let me sort of try and break it down slightly. I mean, first of all, in terms of just as this, this language of war, I mean, look, we know that, of course, if you happen to be a Kremlin pundit and you call it a war, you're going to be fine. You're not going to have to worry about uh, the investigatory committee coming and knocking on your door. But I think also this, this disconnect between the idea of the special military operation and war, I think beyond just simply not wanting to kind of a step back. The reason why it's maintained is because, again, in, in the Kremlin cosmology, what's happening in Ukraine is simply one particular front line on, in the wider war, which is essentially with the West. You know, in, in, in Putin's eye, and I think actually he genuinely believes this, rather than just simply using this as a political gambit, Ukraine is essentially a puppet of the West's that Zelensky gets his, his marching orders from, from, from Washington and, to a slight degree, uh, it's still always uh, 
warms my heart to realize the the, the place that Britain fills fits within the sort of the again the the, the nationalist Russian worldview as as their most subtle and devious antagonists, but also sort of London plays a role. Um, but you know, essentially, that that actually the Ukrainians are just simply proxies for the West, um, which is of course absolute nonsense. Not least because otherwise, you know, what what would be all this point I've been making before about the Ukrainians needing to to manage and continue to sort of keep the West alliance working? But anyway, that that's it. So that's why you know, this is this is just just a front in in the wider war. And I think this is obviously how Putin perceives it, and as you and you're, you rightly say that he has regarded the West as being an antagonist for a long time. But I think it's also as we see this country sliding closer and closer to a form of totalitarianism, which doesn't mean Stalinism necessarily. We're not going to see millions in labour camps and the like. But nonetheless, you know those those remaining elements of a kind of grassroots democracy, or just more to the point, some scope for plurality, which did exist within Putin's system and before the war, you know, are now being truly squeezed out. And totalitarianism requires some kind of ideology if it's to have any chance to, of, of working. There has to be something. It can't, can't just simply be dictatorship of, of, of the boss. You know, e- e- even the most kind of crass dictatorships do try and build some some kind of sense of a wider agenda and a wider purpose and the thing is there is an ideological vacuum a gaping gaping empty hole in putinism i mean i don't even believe frankly we can talk about putinism we can talk about putinist system maybe but not 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 an ism you know this was about an inchoate mass of nationalism kleptocracy and self-interest so he needs to build something, and exactly, I think actually this this struggle is an attempt to try and create something which which will fill that gap. It doesn't actually become an ideology as such, but you know it, it has ideological functions in that it's 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 a way of trying to tell ordinary Russians, this is why you have a stake in it. You know, you do not do what the state demands simply because you're fear you're you're, you're afraid of what could happen. You do it because you're a patriot. You do it because you believe that we are in this sort of struggle, not just for Russia's freedom and sovereignty, but also against the, the, the crushing homogenization of the, the hegemonic West, which, again, is, is, is a bizarre conceit, because, quite frankly, if you're trying to suggest that there is some kind of common um, cultural identity between the American Midwest and Brussels, uh, I, I think you'd have to be, that'd be quite a reach, but nonetheless, it, it, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the, this is the sort of the current line. It's an attempt to try and mobilise, and that, in a way, also speaks to this business of, of the eye of Sauron. You know, Putin, so many times in the course of his twenty-three years in power, has invaded against manual control, and in part because he is a very lazy autocrat. He wants to intervene on the things that he wants to intervene about. But otherwise, he wants things to be handled quietly and efficiently and above all successfully off stage. He doesn't really want to get involved in the minutiae. You know, he wants people like Prime Minister Mishustin and Moscow Mayor Sabianin just to simply sort of do their jobs and basically make sure that the, the fun stuff, the, the war fighting and the allocation of resources to his cronies, you know, is all he has to bother with. The trouble is, 
increasingly, I would suggest, he's created a system which actually demands manual control at the very time when he's not willing and able to do it. First of all, this is about running the country. The more it is under stress, and there's no question but that sanctions and the war really are putting it under stress, then the more crises arise in terms of priorities, in terms of allocation of resources and such like. And these are things which are essentially beyond Mishustin's pay grade. These are things in which actually the boss has to weigh in, and he's clearly unwilling to, to take hard decisions, which is going to be the classic pattern of his throughout. This is a man who, for all his kind of macho persona, actually does not like making tough decisions and will generally try and hide from them. And that's what he's doing now. So you know, we clearly see that there are, in, in, in many ways, kind of multiple policies underway that uh, Mishustin and the technocrats and the cabinet of ministers with their sort of as allies, people like central bank chair Nabulina, you know, are, are trying to, to do their best and sort of to basically crisis proof the country insofar as it's possible. Whereas others are actually pushing for uh, a massive militarization of the state and economy, people like uh, Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, and others are just simply trying to seize what resources they can in the opportunity. So that, that's one area of, of, of manual control which is failing. And the second one is actually in terms of managing the elite. This is a system which is built around creating a, a constant cannibalistic competition between institutions and individuals. The idea is that keeps them, you know, everyone divided. Putin maintains power. He's classic divide and rule. He gets to decide who wins each individual struggle when he wants to. But the point is, it does depend on Putin being the, the, the arbiter, the, the final decider, the person who steps in. And again, at the moment, Putin doesn't seem to be doing that. This is one of the reasons why we have people like Prigozhin making such a fuss, because they can. I mean, eventually, Putin seems to have stepped in to protect Beglov, the governor of St. Petersburg, who was under you know, very heavy attack by, by Prigozhin. But essentially, Putin's not doing his job. So I think this is what I meant about this of the, the eye of Sauron parallel, where Putin focuses, you know, he can basically do whatever he wants within Russia, within the system. But on the other hand, while he's not looking at, at other things, then really, you know, all kinds of other agendas come into play, often counterproductive ones, or else just simply nothing much gets done because, it, they, because no one has the, the political capital, the authority to actually do anything. So, you know, the, the, this system is, is clearly showing it, it, its weaknesses. Even if one looks at the comparison with Stalin, which is always a dangerous one, but nonetheless, you know, if one looks at the comparison with Stalin, under the pressure of the Second World War, what was really striking is how quickly Stalin learned the lesson that you need to, for example, empower your generals, but also actually a lot of your officials who are doing stuff in, in the country as a whole. So, you know, Stalin never obviously relinquished that ultimate power. But nonetheless, he realized that he needed to empower others. Now, Putin just doesn't seem to have gained that lesson. He doesn't seem to have learned it either in terms of his relationships with his generals, just ask General Surovikin, nor does he seem to have learned it in terms of managing the country as a whole. It's one reason why, you know, it is quite clear that Putin is not the brightest chap of all. So, and I'm coming to an end, don't worry. Um, in terms of this question about, you know, does, does it mean that Russia can't win? Well, again, I hesitate to sound too 
airy fairly academic about this, but to, a depend, to an extent, it depends what do you mean by win? What is victory? Can the Russians potentially drag this out for quite some time, this conflict, such that it is possible that the West begins to lose interest, uh, fragment, run out of money, have a series of elections? I mean, fortunately, there are no major elections in 2023 coming up, but 2024, not, not so. Um, you know, so could Russia drag this out? It is possible. I think one has to acknowledge that. On the other hand, do I believe that actually Russia can, can win on the battlefield? No. Do I think that ultimately Russia will be able to impose a kind of ugly peace? I suspect not. But on the other hand, it's possible that it might be to hold on long enough that it manages to impose some kind of a peace deal, which is essentially a defeat, but contains just enough, maybe about control, continuing control of Crimea, that Putin can say it was all worthwhile. So, you know, th- th- this is why I think the whole question of, of, of winning and losing becomes a sort of a difficult one. More to the point, though, I think what, what this war really has demonstrated has been the, the moral, the political, and the fundamental weaknesses of, of Putin's system that for so long was basically running on momentum, on positive you know, international market prices for their hydrocarbons, and the fact that there were smart people who were actually sort of regardless, not thanks to Putin, still able to, to do something for the country. But I think this is it. it. It hasn't created that kind of political and ideological momentum that carries the Russian people along with them. I mean, it's clear that they, they, they are feeling the pinch. They are increasingly economizing. They're increasingly putting money away and, and even sort of ideally not putting it into banks because you know, obviously they, they don't necessarily trust the system. And it's very hard to get any kind of real sense of, of opinion. But nonetheless, you know, there have been some quite inventive attempts at trying to sort of find ways of, of through through sort of alternative means, sort of gauging Russian public opinion. Very crudely, it seems to be, we have a kind of a, a quarter who are still supportive of the war, a quarter who are actively opposed to it, and a half who just basically don't really... Th- care they just regard this as something to to be endured just keep your head down and survive that's certainly not what putin was looking for as he tries to create this sort of new patriotic war ideology all right thanks very much the fascinating fascinating analysis mark um as 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 always um uh i'd like to take a few questions um or I'd like Mark to take a few questions. Uh, first one I will um, ask that's come in from uh, Vesper Tink, a user with that username. Um, question is, do you think uh, that all Russian intelligence and secret agencies, um, security agencies, are in full war with the West? And if so, what do you think about their performance? In comparison to what is written uh, in the in this sort of mainstream Western Western media, how accurate uh, is the is the picture of, of their their power? Sure, um, excellent question, uh, and indeed excellent name. Um, look, my view is actually that really the intelligence agencies have been on kind of war footing since at least twenty fourteen. 
The thing is that what they have experienced has been a, sort of a, a series of hammer blows, particularly in terms of the massive level of expulsions that they, they had from, from Europe, which means that they're, they're not really as anywhere near as able to operate out of embassies under official cover. And so they're having to rely more on people under non-official cover, you know, so, so you know, classic um, sort of spy we, we see from the films, who are much, much more vulnerable, much, much more prone to being you know, arrested and put in prison rather than just simply you know, declared persona non grata and kicked out of the country. And we are seeing a, a regular toll of people being arrested, I think most recently in, in Slovakia, as I recall. The thing is also that they are laboring under, I would suggest, quite a tight political constraint at the moment. I mean, one of the issues that I was concerned about when the whole invasion started and the West moved to support Ukraine was that we would see a substantive campaign of attempts to subvert, destabilize and even sabotage within NATO countries, whether through large-scale cyber attacks or actual sort of direct physical acts, you know, thinking back to in 2014, for example, the, the GRU ran an operation in Vrbjetica in the Czech Republic in which explosives were planted within munitions that were being sold by a private uh, third party to Ukraine. So I, I was wondering if we were going to see more of those. And we haven't. It's been one of those dogs that haven't barked. And I think it's to an extent because actually the Russians are still really very careful about not wanting to basically bring NATO in further and escalate it in that terms. The very same way as, you know, even when the Russians were actually launching much more in terms of air sorties by aircraft over Ukraine, they were really quite careful not to fly anywhere close to Ukraine's western border, just to avoid the risk of looking as if they were heading towards you know, NATO territory or just simply accidentally crossing that, that border. So at the moment, I think we've seen a, a degree of restraint. Now, there's some hints that that might be coming to an end. I mean, there's been the, 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 the claim that, for example, the Russians helped instigate a, a letter bombing campaign in Spain carried out by a far right group, or indeed that they were somehow behind the Quran burning in Sweden, which has sort of very much uh, angered the Turks. I'm not quite convinced, especially about that latter one yet. But the point is that if Putin is looking for escalatory options um, now, as, you know, as, as we're in 2023, they all have high political costs, whether it means sending in conscripts, whether it means another mobilization wave, whether it means at the very extreme end, which I really would stress, I think is highly, highly unlikely, um, turning to tactical nuclear weapons, or whether it means essentially trying to target the supply lines within NATO countries. As I say, all of them have um, costs. But on the other hand, it may be that he's willing to slightly unleash his intelligence services avoiding the kind of things like a sort of a massive cyber attack on critical national infrastructure, which is explicitly within sort of NATO Article 5, mutual uh, security to guarantee terms. You know, but anything like that, anything below that, which might begin to essentially try and create some greater division and dismay within Europe, that's, that's definitely within his kind of potential repertoire. I mean, on the whole, Russian, Russian intelligence agencies were, you know, their, their, their capabilities were overblown. 
they were relatively active because they had a lot of resources and they were operating at a much higher tempo than anyone else. But what that meant was they didn't really have any anything extra in the tank. So I think given given the pressure they're under, we shouldn't really be surprised, but they can still cause more mischief if Putin is willing to take the potential political risks. All right. Thanks very much, Mark, uh, for that for that response. Um, uh, are there any more questions? Uh, time for a couple more. Hi, Peter S. You can ask your question. Yeah. Hi. Um, I see um, w when this all started, I always saw this as the last battle of the dictatorships. But by that, I meant not just Russia, but uh, Belarus as well with Lukashenko. And uh, we know that about 82% of Belarusians don't support this war. And uh, Lukashenko has been playing a juggling act with Putin. Um, now, I just wonder how much of this war is not a fear of NATO, other than Putin's expansionist plans, but of uh, democra creeping democracy as an example in Ukraine, the success of democracy right on his doorstep, and the fragility of Belarus, which could not now, but in the future, go the same way and infect Russia with democracy. Um, and also how much uh, Putin will take more direct control over Belarus as uh, he sees that as a fragile threat. Okay. Um, I mean, first, first of all, in terms of sort of the you know, last last dictatorships, I mean, even if one looks at the sort of post-Soviet space, alas, there's also there's a, one can look at Central Asia, one can look at Azerbaijan. There's 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 many democracies, uh, sort of dictatorships there, let alone elsewhere in the world. In terms of this idea that Putin is worried about the kind of creeping example of democracy. I'm not convinced that that really was was a major factor. Um, I think it's something that makes us feel warm and fuzzy, but I don't really know if it actually applies. I mean, not least, you know, if I think back, I mean, obviously, I, ever since June of last year, I have been banned from from Russia. But you know, I used to travel a lot and spend quite a bit of time there and talk to a lot of people, including people who definitely were not on the uh, West friendly end of the political spectrum. And one of the things that struck me, and was really quite quite broadly, was basically a, and one can call this quite a sort of an imperialist attitude, but a considerable degree of, I'm trying to think of the right way of framing this, affectionate contempt for the Ukrainians. I mean, I think, you know, look, I'm not in any way subscribing to this view or whatever, but there was this sense of, you know, if, if, if one thinks of the sort of the, the three mains, as they were regarded, Slavic nations, the Russians, the Belarusians, and the Ukrainians. The Belarusians to them were the, were the Scandinavian Slavs. You know, they were that much more kind of unemotional and controlled and efficient. Whereas the Ukrainians were, and I say this as a half Italian myself, the Italian Slavs. 
they had had the best food and, and great culture, but they were kind of excitable, corrupt, and incompetent. That that was the sort of the, the I think a, a fairly broadly prevailing stereotype. And again, like all stereotypes, you know, many many people would would not subscribe to it. But the point is, there was very little belief that Ukraine would be the Ukraine, shall we say, sort of democratic experiment would be a successful one. There was a pretty prevailing view that Ukraine which was, after all, and frankly was indeed deeply corrupt and in many ways quite dysfunctional, would just simply end up with more of the same. That the sort of democracy would once again essentially be ground down by the powers of, of oligarchy and corruption. After all, you know, Ukraine has gone through a whole variety of revolutions and state building moments that didn't work now i mean i think actually in this respect the irony is that i think in many ways putin is the true father of the modern ukrainian nation in that you know since 2014 he has done more to unify ukrainians east and west catholic orthodox you name it um than than, than anyone else and i don't actually think there is going to be the same backsliding but the point is, I, I just don't think that the Russians believe that Ukraine would work and that would thus be a dangerous example. And even if it did happen, it, it would have taken years. When it comes to, to Belarus, Putin does not, I think, want to have to try and impose greater control on Belarus if he can possibly avoid it. Again, this is, this is an element of the, of, the, of the laziness. And the thing is, I mean, Lukashenko deeply unpleasant man, but nonetheless, again, clearly a real political survivor and, and a wily operator. He's clearly twisting and turning, firstly to avoid actually having his troops forced into being sort of part of this uh, military adventure. Um, and, and let's be honest, the, we'd be talking in practice maybe eight, 9,000 you know, troops that they could actually deploy. I mean, it's, it's not going to make the difference one way or the other, really. Um so he's doing everything short of that. He's providing training grounds and indeed trainers for the, for the Mobics, the mobilized reservists. He's allowing the Russians to plunder Belarusian arms stockpiles and so forth, use Belarus as a base, but not with Belarusian troops, not least because the Belarusian military is exceedingly deeply opposed to being deployed. So that's, that's one thing. And secondly, he's also trying to, in a way, maintain his own autonomy. Um, I mean, it's quite striking that you know, there hasn't been the kind of mass influx of, shall we say, sort of pro-Russian or pro-Moscow figures in into the, the, the Belarusian government that, that would that would uh, suggest that, in some ways, Putin was was organising a kind of quiet takeover. Lukashenko has very much kind of held the line there. So, so, so generally speaking, I mean, I think that actually. Imposing greater control over over Belarus from, would actually require more resources and more effort from Russia than I think it would be worth. So long as Lukashenko is willing to kind of play the line up up to a point, I think they they they. Re- uh, I think we lost Mark there, unfortunately. No, no, no that was just just the end of, of of what I had to say. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I for me it seemed to cut off a bit, but uh, uh, thanks thanks a lot. Um, my error. Um, okay, uh, I, I find that the Belarusian, um, you know, possible participation fascinating. Just one thing I'll say. I think I've tried to say this before on this on this podcast, but 
Lukashenko's popularity in the past, including among some Russians, um, was you know the fact that he's not sending uh, Belarusian um, uh, young men to fight and be killed. So he he doesn't want to lose that. Um, okay, um, I believe there's a question. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, so are there any more questions? Hi, I'm Dmitry Alperovich. You can ask your question. Great. Um, hi, Mark. Uh, one question I have is this fascinating episode with Takai of the president of Kazakhstan uh, over last year. Putin saves him uh, from uh, the coup that uh, attempted to replace him last January. And yet he has done pretty much everything possible to stick it to Putin very publicly, including uh, on stage in St. Petersburg at Putin's forum there. Um, what do you think is going on there, and why do you think he feels so free to um, uh, confront Putin on this war, um, or at least uh, withdraw, uh, withhold his support? Yeah, what is the world coming to when there's no loyalty between autocrats, is it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what this really demonstrates is the extent to which actually the war has incredibly quickly and incredibly deeply changed Russia's relationship with the Central Asian states. Before the war, actually, Russia was regarded in quite positive terms as a security guarantor. That you go to the to basically to Beijing for money, to Moscow for muscle. Um, because the Chinese didn't really want, want to get involved other than just simply you know, buying what they wanted to buy and establishing whatever trade routes they wanted. Whereas the Russians, in order to maintain their political state, their claim to kind of hegemony over the so-called near abroad, were actually willing to, to provide security guarantors, whether it's in terms of the, the 201st in Tajikistan, um, to sort of, you know, just in case it, it, radicals came across from Afghanistan, you know, and, and indeed the, the deployment in, in January in, in, in support of Tokayev. So there was a sense that actually the Russians were relatively reliable and relatively capable. The point is that now the sense that Russia would actually be willing and able to do anything in, in, in support of, of their allies, clients, call them what you will, in, in Central Asia it has dramatically diminished. I mean, if there was a rerun of, of the Kazakhstan events, you know, even that pretty small deployment that the Russians organized I'd be very, very surprised if they're actually able to, to, to stage that, let alone be able to bring other CSDO countries on board. So I think that, that there is a sense that, in fact, Russia has, frankly, permanently lost it, it, its capacity to do that. And we're actually, you know, we're seeing the 201st, for example, being very much down, downscaled, kit being brought back to, to be sent to Ukraine and such like. No, I, I, so I think from from that point of view, I mean, Tokayev, who after all faces a certain you know amount of, of of domestic pressure as well. I mean, on the one hand, you know, he's he is the the president of arguably the most powerful of the Central Asian countries. At the same time, he has to demonstrate that he's not a puppet of Putin's, despite the uh, January intervention. He's also someone who is, I think, getting the uh, best deals from Beijing at the moment. So I think this is an opportunity for him to, to demonstrate his independence, to demonstrate that in some ways he is the, 
The spokesman, the representative for Central Asia, whether the other Central Asian countries agree with that or not, um, you know, and 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 in, in some ways this this has become his thing. And the very fact that the Russians are clearly unable in any way meaningfully to push back against him, to punish him for his temerity, I think actually demonstrates that, that this assessment is, is, is true. Uh, that in fact, just as it has, I would suggest, lost the South Caucasus, and it's really quite striking the degree to which actually Armenia you know, now realises that it cannot put any faith in Moscow to defend it against the Azeri-Turkish alliance. Also, too, I think uh, Moscow has has you know, very dramatically lost its role in Central Asia, and Takayev is just simply uh, the person who's making that the most obvious. Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, just really amazing developments. Um, uh, and, of course, our discussion of the second question kind of uh, raises the, the issue of you know, what is going to happen uh, w with Russia in the future. Uh, so these are huge, huge developments and huge uh, questions to ponder. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, thanks very much for those answers. And thanks, Dimitri and Peter and the other questioner for, for the questions. Um, Mark, uh, appreciate it very much. Thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure. All right. Once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti. An analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, uh, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFURL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out um, for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for listening.